0: So CAMPO is a system just like classical Chinese herbal medicine that relies on accurate and pinpoint diagnosis that matches like a lock and key to an already existing formula with either minimal or no modification. You're always thinking about the entirety of how all of the signs and symptoms present together and in their entirety, almost like a narrative, a clinical narrative or story. Is there a formula in your consciousness that is beginning to look like it matches the entirety of that narrative and boom like a lock and key boom you give that's the form you give
1: welcome to Pacific Rim College radio a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Kampo is Japanese herbal medicine influenced by the classical Chinese tradition. In this episode, renowned Kampo and Shiatsu practitioner Nigel Dawes and I discuss all things related to its practice and so much more. Nigel began studying Kampo in Japan 40 years ago and has been practicing and teaching ever since. He is the founder of the London College of Shiatsu and the New York Kampo Institute, the latter of which he still runs today. His most recent book published in 2020 by Singing Dragon is entitled Fukushin and Kampo, and discusses the topics of abdominal diagnosis and herbal medicine. Here we talk at length about the culture of traditional Japanese medicine and the influence of Han Dynasty Chinese classical texts such as the Shang Hanlun. Lun. We also explore both the energetic and physical aspects of Harishun and Fukushin abdominal diagnosis Compare the Japanese styles of herbal medicine and acupuncture practice to those of China and touch upon the topic of shiatsu. Nigel also narrates some of his personal journey living and studying in Japan and learning in the hospitals of Beijing. For the Enthusiast of Asian Medicine, this is a fascinating interview of unique styles, including their modern-day practice and their roots. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Nigel Dawes. Nigel, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio.
0: Thank you for having me very much, Todd. Yeah.
1: It's great to connect with you again. We were just reminiscing that it's been probably close to fifteen years since I would say. Since, since you were at Pacific Rim College teaching.
0: Raising my little finger having tea at the Empress or something like <laughs> that. <laughs> Not exactly, but I
1: remember that. Yes, yeah. That's right. <laughs> And when you were here, you were teaching in part of the Japanese acupuncture program, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And now you are involved, and I guess then too, but now you're involved with something known as compo. Can you begin us with basically a definition of what compo is and maybe a a little history of it for those listeners who aren't familiar?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think the first thing to say um, is just that, you know, the, the word itself kampo mean literally means no mystery a mystery about it so you know most people associate it with something Japanese but in fact the literal meaning is just the the method of the han the method of the han Chinese so it's actually a, a you know tipping the hat in deference to the Chinese tradition of herbal medicine in its classical form meaning basically a reference to any and all herbal practice that is primarily informed by the classical texts of the han dynasty meaning the shang Lun and the jingwei yaolue for the most part so you one could call kampo essentially classical chinese herbal medicine if you like uh, or if you wanted to be very wordy classical chinese medicine in the japanese tradition something like that so the, yeah, the Japanese in naming it Kampo is, is, is very clearly um, acknowledging the, the origins and authorship of of the medicine, in this case herbal medicine, which is resolutely Chinese in origin. However, uh, since you can imagine um, the penetration of the materials began into Japan, and we think around the middle of the 6th century, so we've got about 1,500 years of fairly continuous lineage that then grew up within Japan itself. So I guess that if you'd like to say the Japanization of the original clinical ideas and practice from, you know, classical China. So there's a lot of aspects of Kampo that one could say are Japanese in nature. Um, the one that springs to mind most obviously is, for example, the use of the abdomen in practice in terms of diagnostic and treatment applications, which is not uniquely Japanese, but the Chinese in the modern era, certainly I mean the last two or three hundred years, have tended to drop that practice and it's not very strongly continued in Chinese modern practice. Uh, but the Japanese have certainly developed their own systems of abdominal palpation, and there are many other examples. So yeah, Kappa is basically classical Chinese herbal medicine as it has developed in the Japanese mainland and therefore has its own little tastes and characteristics, I guess you'd say.
1: Can you give some examples of what some of those different characteristics are that make it uniquely yes. japanese yeah
0: okay well um like I, like i mentioned and um, there are certain aspects of both assessment and actual clinical technique that are let's say put it this way emphasized again the origins are certainly clearly chinese and you know there's plenty of references for example to the abdomen in the shanghan lun so it's not like it was invented by the japanese but um, so aspects of diagnosis that tends to be emphasized are much more palpatory in origin. So for example, in Kampo, we're very uh, fo- focused, I might say, fixated on the palpation of the abdomen and the palpation of the pulses. And the pulse palpation is based on shang Han lun pulse-taking methods, which is pretty different actually than much later... Uh, der- 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 derived, um, uh, well, basically ba- based on Li Jen's work in the 16th and 17th century in China. So most of what's taught these days in Chinese uh, TCM schools in terms of pulse taking is a totally different method. So yeah, pulse and abdomen, um, tongue is played down a lot uh, in Kampo for example. Um, so there are different sort of emphases within what any Chinese medicine practitioner or student would recognize as being originally Chinese um in terms of practice though things start to look I would say fundamentally different and that's to say there's a couple of aspects to that one is dosing um the we haven't really got time in in the scope of this podcast to talk about dosing because it's actually quite a complex issue the more I study about it and read about it the more I realize wow, that's a That's a pretty key aspect of herbal medicine is like how much of these damn herbs do you give, you know, and the dosing in history would seem to be consistent. But it turns out actually the more I discover and research that that's not actually the case. And some of the measurement systems in ancient China are not clearly understood. We don't know exactly what some of those terms of reference actually meant in terms of weight. So there's a lot of discussion and debate. That being said, the the sort of simple end of the story when it comes to dosing is to suggest that, I would say on average in modern Campo, if you took a standard classical formula, let's say like Guiza Fuling One, or let's just say Guizza cinnamon combination, um, or cinnamon twig decoction, uh, there are only five herbs in that formula, and the standard dosing is usually fairly agreed upon, but in Japan, um, the gram amounts would be about one third, those of what's used in modern China today so on, on average the dosing in, in, in all classical formulas is about one-third daily dose of what, what is currently used in China so you know modest and rather almost homeopathic dosing is one aspect of Tampa that's very interesting um, again it gets a bit technical but there may be many reasons for that historically and uh, one of them might be quite a, a modern reason being that in Japan since the 50s, as you probably know, there's a ten- there has been a tendency to use or rely on the granular extraction process for the delivery of the herbs. Now, prior to that, they always used raw herbs and you can still find raw herb pharmacies in, in Japan today, but not so many and certainly not in the same quantity as you find in China. And that granulation process is Sometimes it may be misunderstood because it is a, an extraction process, meaning it's a concentration process. So uh, it is usually what they refer to as a five to one con- concentration extraction process. So if you have, I don't know, f- if you 50 grams of original herbal material for a daily dose of a particular formula, that'll appear as only 10 grams of granules. So these are quite, po- although the amounts look small, they are quite potent in their own right. But that's one big difference in campo is the the delivery dose and the the amount of raw material that we use. Um, uh, There's no reboiling either in the campo tradition. So it's one one daily dose, that's it, no reboil. But I think probably the the much more significant difference is the really clear um, adherence to the prescribing of known quantities or known if you like, units, meaning or referring to the formulas themselves. So CAMPO is a system, just like classical Chinese herbal medicine, is a system that relies on accurate and pinpoint diagnosis that matches like a lock and key to an already existing formula with either minimal or no modification. So some people, again, and this I regard as a little bit of a misunderstanding, might think of that as, oh, this is like patent medicine. Well, no, patent medicines are modern, uh, usually variations on classical formulas, and usually the dosing is quite mild. But No, it's the use of classical formulas, but in in their unit base. In other words, exactly as written by their original authors without modification. And therefore, the focus in camp of practice, if you can imagine, if you're not putting a lot of your clinical skills towards judging uh, or or differentiating the use of individual herbs and also the gram amounts within a formula. If you're not actually focusing on that, if you're relying on a pre-existing formula, your focus really is on the diagnostic skill of matching that formula to what's in front of you. In other words, the patient's presenting signs and symptoms. So I would say that's the biggest sort of day-to-day clinical difference when you're sitting with a patient. You're not thinking in terms of, Oh right, this patient has dampness in the lower jaw. So what are the herbs that drain dampness from the lower jaw and then stuff? That kind of clinical thinking doesn't apply. You're always thinking about the entirety of how all of the signs and symptoms present together, and in their entirety, almost like a narrative. I used to I usually refer to it as a narrative, a clinical narrative or story. Is there a formula in your consciousness that? Is beginning to look like it matches the entirety of that narrative, and boom, like a lock and key. Boom, you give that's the formula you give. Um, so that clinical process, I think, is a little different. Um, in fact, remarkably different from, let's say, the modern TCM process of right. compounding a formula herb by herb. You know.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. And then with the abdominal diagnosis and such an emphasis on diagnosis, mm. is is that the Hara diagnosis? Is that, is yes. That, is that what it's known that's, as? Okay.
0: That's the Hara, yeah, yeah. Funny you should mention that word. It's interesting because in the you probably know the Chinese character uh, in Japanese, one of the interesting things about the phonetic uh, sound of the Japanese uh, sounding out of, of Chinese characters is that the Japanese have... Uh, the Chinese of course as we know it's a tonal thing so there's five tones and all that that's all very well and Japanese is a monotone language so they don't differentiate by tone but what they do do is they have a completely different pronunciation for the same character so an example is exactly the one you've chosen which is the character for Hara is the same character that is can also be pronounced as Fuku or in Chinese Fubu so uh there's two different pronunciations of the same character but they do have nuanced meanings so we usually refer to in campo as fukushin because fuku has a more kind of concrete physical anatomical kind of connotation so you know the fukushin in campo is quite i wouldn't say it's like a western abdominal exam but it is quite you know we palpate for succussion sounds we listen for gas we listen for fluid we palpate the border of the rectus abdominis. You know, there's a lot of anatomy and spe- specific um, you know, concrete, tactile kind of quality to it. And I'm saying that because I'm thinking, since I'm a shatshu practitioner as well, for example, some bodywork methodologies that use the abdomen, they would refer to qualities in much more of an energetic sense, right? Much more kind of touchy-feely, not quite so concrete. And they would then refer to that as Harashin. So Fukushin is a sort of more physical exam, and Harashin is a slightly more, we could call it energetic, palpation of the abdomen, Uh, even though it's the same character. It's kind of interesting.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) Well, it does. Yes. Yeah. And is that because Fukushin has more of a modern twist or derivation to it? I think
0: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it is. It is modern in the sense that we're talking sort of late mid to late 17th century, okay. so this is the beginning and and then moving into the height of the Edo period in Japan, which is contemporary with the Ming Dynasty in China. So you know it's old in some sense, but it's not that old in the in the trajectory of Chinese medicine as a whole. So yes, really, it was it was just before the arrived, the beginnings of the first uh for example anatomical textbooks that came to japan in the 17th century from mostly from holland the dutch textbooks to begin with and it i think you're right in the sense that you know camper practitioners uh probably more so than acupuncturists in japan at the time um didn't have a huge theoretical difficulty in moving away from the slightly more amorphous energetic Uh, kind of construct of the medicine as it was then in other words meridians and meridian-based perception of the body and organs being perceived as more functional than you know structural and then when these anatomy books came in and people were looking at these very detailed drawings of oh man that's what the liver looks like or that's what (laughs) based on dissection of course I think the campo practitioners were much more so than the acupuncturists in Japan were quite happy to kind of embrace that model of structural anatomy and sort of, you know, feeling things in that way. And in fact, some of the more renowned individuals in the Campo Spectrum at that time, one comes to mind, Todo Yoshimazu, quite a well-known character from the 18th century. He was even, you know, he was a bit of a purist, but he went even so far as to denounce uh, meridian theory altogether. He wasn't interested in meridian theory. He was like, you know, now we know what the body really is. Here we are, we're getting this, you know, so these meridians, you know, these are conceptual ideas. Uh, I'm not interested in that. I'm only interested in what I can touch and feel. And, you know, so these very pragmatic kind of, um, that doesn't represent the entirety of Kampo. There are lots of differences of opinion, but certainly I think you're right that it's, you know, maybe one of the reasons Kampo survives so well today and is practiced by Western physicians in Japan could be that there wasn't such a bridge between the traditional and the modern, actually, in in terms of the body at that time. Right. Not quite true of the acupuncture. The you know, acupuncture is a little separate in that regard because, you know, as we all know, the basis of acupuncture is meridians. So. If you give up the idea of meridians, you're in trouble. So uh, the Japanese acupunctures obviously have never given that up. From the So the Nanjing, Neijing basis of acupuncture has not been relinquished by. And that's why acupuncture and Kampo in Japan are, I won't say they're at loggerheads, but they're practiced by differently minded individuals, you know, which is kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. So just to wrap up. Well, maybe to wrap up, but a little bit more on the abdominal diagnosis. So, yeah. would a practitioner then use either Fukushin or Harishin, or do they combine?
0: Yes, that's a great question, and um, I, I guess I, you know, I, probably the best place to come from there is just to give my own experience, since I, I do actually practice both. I tend to try to. I'm, I'm a person who, you know, I, although I think we all like to integrate as much as we can integrate in the sense of integrate practice but also integrate different models of understanding and try to make things fit and all that but i've over the years i've i've actually in some areas just decided for myself that that's actually pretty hard to do and sometimes a little artificial so i found for example in the realm of palpation that i i kind of tend to stay true to the system i'm working with at any one time so that for example, if I give you a very simple example, of, okay, patient comes in my practice, I'm doing acupuncture. When I first palpate the pulse, and particularly when I first palpate the abdomen, I follow a system that is part of my acupuncture system, which is basically called meridian therapy. It's a particular style of Japanese acupuncture. And that's a different palpatory system of the abdomen than my camper. So in other words, when I first touch and palpate the patient and set the first round of needles, I'm not even thinking about herbs at all. And I u- I use a system that is related in my mind to acupuncture practice. Only when the first round of needles come out and then I might look at the tongue and ask some more questions, then I'll do a Campo palpation, which is now with a kind of a different hat on, I'm now thinking about herb- herbs and herbal prescriptions. So I tend to keep them pretty separate. Um, so in that scenario, You know, Harashin would have described the first thing that I did and Fukushin would have described the the later palpation that I did.
1: Okay. So, if tongue diagnosis is not readily used and tongue diagnosis is in part based on this homunculus system where the tongue represents the whole body, does the abdomen replace that as a homunculus? Does the abdomen represent the whole body? Yes.
0: Yes. In many ways, that, that would be a fair assessment. Um, I wouldn't say that, yes, I mean, certainly in my own practice, I I would not say that I'm strictly speaking, Campo style, in the sense that I don't look at the tongue, the tongue is important to me. In fact, if anything, I would say, with the exception of assessing infectious disease and, you know, exterior attack, I am less likely to incorporate pulse findings as closely as I am the tongue and the abdomen. To me, the tongue and the abdomen belong to kind of yin aspects of diagnosis, meaning that they reflect changes over time. Um, yes. I don't think any of us would expect the tongue color to change within the range of one, you know, within the hour right. of a treatment. On the other hand, as we all know, the pulse can change moment to moment. And that's one of its advantages, of course, it reflects such subtle changes. But in that, I guess what I'm saying in my perception, tongue and abdomen, usually, I look for tongue and abdomen findings to match because that would make the most logical sense. And in many cases, the tongue and abdomen do match and the pulse may not. And in those cases, in camper practice at least, we tend to then put the pulse aside with the thought in the back of our mind that, okay, I don't quite understand why that doesn't right. seem to be giving me the same message, but I'll, I'll leave it aside. I'll discount it for now and I'll try to understand it later, that kind of thing. So I would say tongue and abdomen together actually are predominantly more consistently used in diagnosis than the pulse. Although, as I said in the beginning, certainly in the Shaolin Lun practice, certainly for the yang stages where the pulse is very important and often tongue changes don't occur in the early stages, then the pulse becomes super important. So if you're dealing with an infectious case, then, you know, pulse becomes more, more important than the abdomen in that particular scenario. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now with compo and the herbal dose, you said that almost homeopathic doses are are used very small doses and what struck me is in my understanding at least is the similarity to what I will call quote-unquote the dosage for Japanese acupuncture which is as a practice tends to be much more gentle than the traditional Chinese acupuncture that we think of is there a relationship to that a very gentle acupuncture very gentle herbal doses is there or is that just coincidental
0: i don't think it's coincidental and uh yeah and the fact that you you've noticed that yourself i mean that's i think it's i think there are possible there's multi-layers to that question i think the in my mind the most obvious possibility to to explain that is probably cultural um i think that if you look at other aspects of the not just the healing arts but the fine arts of japan or the you know uh so you could be looking at i don't know also martial arts if you look at the martial arts or the or let's see tea ceremony or some of the fine arts there is a thread of kind of quality or or kind of the the basic principles involved that seem fairly consistent and you know i don't know I don't know. I had a little bit of experience in Japan with martial arts, but iaido, for example, which is a sword, study of the sword. I mean, this is a <laughs> this is like so kind of pared down to minimal movement, and then you know one strike. I mean, it's very very. It's not in any way flowery. There's no kind of like. You know, when you look at the 108 moves of the, you know, long form Tai Chi, like that's complicated, man. That's really. Or <laughs> well, if you look at some of the fine art and Chinese painting, very delicate, lots of detail. And the Japanese are so, like, you know, straightforward and, and zen and clear. Um, I think there is a cultural aspect amongst the Japanese that is, I won't call it anti intellectual, um, but it, it is it is almost a kind of. There's a Japanese proverb, which is ron yori shoko, which translates as evidence is more valuable than logic. And it's a kind of, every Japanese person, even today is kind of familiar with that kind of saying. It's like kind of, oh, you think this, or you believe that, all right, show me, show me. They want to see the evidence. They They kind of like to get their hands dirty and get down to business. They're not so given to intellectualizing or theorizing and i'm not suggesting that there's a value in one or the other i'm just noticing there's a difference and for example in china certainly from the neoclassical period um there's a lot of value placed in what they call the scholar physician tradition where a lot of you know acupuncturists and other physicians were also scholars very high level scholars of many of the arts including you know painting and fine art and you know supposed to master all these different things and there's Um, That's why they hung around the court and they were often, you know, patronized by the court and and, and, and paid by them to do all these studies. Um, I'm not sure that that was entirely the same in Japan at all. So it's a bit of a long answer that the first and most important thing that I think is simplicity and clarity and sort of minimalist uh, rather than flowery activity. It seems to be a quality that the Japanese, for whatever reason, uh, value. And they get a bit mistrustful, almost, about things that are too complicated. <laughs> so, you, know, um, I, you know, some of my Japanese friends might kill me for saying that. They'll probably just call me racist <laughs> or something. But, I, you know, that's my perception. That's my ex- experience of living there. And, um, so that's one thing, the cultural aspect. But I think there are, there are other reasons. I mean, some of them are very practical. There is some historical evidence uh, to suggest, for example, that in the case of herbs, Um, It was very difficult at certain periods of Japanese history, uh, especially during what they call the famously closed period. So the Edo period, for example, from 1603 to 1868, you know, 250 years, uh, Japan was really isolated and closed and did not really trade at all, open itself up at all, even to its neighbors, even to Korea or China. So that the supply of herbs was actually very limited in Japan. So there is some historical evidence to suggest that the Japanese embracing of and development of the use of what was originally Chinese herbal knowledge adapted to not only the culture and the mindset, but also to some of the practical issues like, hey, I can't get all those herbs. You know, you've got a pharmacopoeia of you know more than 2,000 different herbs. We don't have that here. We have, you know which is possibly another reason why some scholars have suggested the the enduring um you know value and appreciation of the Lun because the Lun as you probably know uses the use of its her- only 108 herbs in the entire Lun so the very small number of actual herbal materials and very few animal products only two leech and gadfly I think are the only two so uh the Lun presents actually a quite accessible uh herbal you know repertoire for a country that may not have had access to the variety of herbs that of course china did so there could be very practical reasons why the dosing was less the formulas were using very commonly used herbs not you know complicated animal products or minerals or other things that developed later in chinese medical history so there's a lot of reasons i think for those um, delicate minimal sort of simple approaches to to Chinese medicine,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate the insight into that, and especially <coughs> the cultural references and while you were speaking. It reminded me of Japanese archery, which is also a very, a, I don't know if delicate is the right word, but it is a very, again, a more delicate system of archery than some of the other systems and very meditative. There's a whole ceremony about it and the actual firing of the arrow, the releasing of the bowstring is meant to come through non-release it's right almost so that the practitioner isn't even aware that they are releasing and it reminds me of the Dallas concept of Wu Wei, which is basically in action through non-action so not forcing things but bringing about change through the non-forcing of things so it's a, a very different approach than we often take in western society of oh i've got to muscle through this or i've got to fight this and Whereas Wu Wei is very much more of the Zen approach of just surrendering, and and through that change happens. Very fascinating. It, I guess while we're on the topic of culture, can you, having lived in Japan as you have, can you give some insight into the culture of this type of medicine in Japan? Both compo and acupuncture are they as prevalent as we see in China? Is it something that people grow up thinking, I'm going to become a, a compo practitioner or an acupuncturist? Is it part, and I know this is a, a multifaceted question, is it part of the of the conventional medical system as it is in China? Mm-hmm. Just wondering mm-hmm. if you can shed any insight on that.
0: Sure, yeah. Well, unfortunately, some of my answers are going to possibly be a bit um, bursting the bubble for some, some mm-hmm. of us because we'd like to think uh, sometimes i think i certainly i i did when i first went to asia think very romantically about these things um but i have to say japan is a unique case um for example in china as we know it's a fairly integrated system and uh, doctors who study five-year basic program they they can choose to specialize in tcm or western medicine but they have to study both that's not the case in japan um, so I'd have to answer the question in two parts, which is to answer about acupuncture and campo separately. Because uh, if we start at the end point, which is if you like licensure, you know, to get licensed in acupuncture in Japan, you have to go to acupuncture school. And acupuncture school is not medical school. It's, it's acupuncture school, just like here in the States. So it's usually three years, but then you have to do two years internship. So it's usually a five-year thing, which is what I did. Um, and that leads to a license in acupuncture. Uh, passing the test, whatever. Um, But you're clearly not, you don't have a medical background. I mean, very few medical doctors study acupuncture. Some do, but uh, most of them practice a kind of medicalized acupuncture, probably a little bit similar to here, the few doctors that do acupuncture. So in that sense, if you look at acupuncture, the system is quite similar as we see here in America, which means that you have acupuncture specialists, and that's what they do. Very few of them practice herbs because to study herbs in Japan is really tricky. You have to basically go to medical school or pharmacy school. Um, I was completely lucky because I was a foreigner. So I was kind of outside that system and I had some, some ways in to study with different people. Um, but if I'd been Japanese in Japan, I would have had to study in medical school or become a pharmacist in order to study herbs. So that's already a really big difference. So it means you have these kind of two coexisting communities uh, which means that as a, if you're a patient in Japan, you'd go to an acupuncturist almost exactly in the same manner you might go to an acupuncturist in this country, meaning that it's private medicine, it's by you know, usually word of mouth referral or something like that. Uh, once in a while, a medical doctor might refer you to an acupuncturist, but that's fairly rare. So it, it's its own community. Um, there's no national health insurance for it. Um, and so it's an out-of-pocket expense for the most part. But it is, of course, part of the tradition and culture of Japan for the longest time. And in that sense, it's different from the States. There's a lot more history there. Every single individual, you know, from three years old to 90, you know, is certainly aware of acupuncture and may well have had it. And so there is there is more, you know, people identify more with it. But having said that, and this is again just acupuncture now, I will say this. if one were an intellectual snob or an educational snob, I could say, um, one would look down on acupuncture a little bit in Japan. And I certainly had that experience quite a few times because I was, you know, so happy to be, you know, thrilled to be studying East Asian medicine there and all was. And my Japanese friends would often ask me, you know, what are you doing here? So I said, well, you know, I'm studying, you know, I'm studying uh, toyo like you know, East Asian medicine. And they look at me like, and I could tell, I was like, hmm, they were probably think something like, "Well, couldn't couldn't you do anything else?" I mean, <laughs> you know, and then they and then they sort of think about, it and they'd say, "Oh, I saw you, a student. Okay, uh, that's a kind of strange thing." Huh? um So what do you do? How do you pay for it? And then I would say, "Oh, well, I teach English." Oh, you're an English teacher, you know. So that was like, you know, that was like up here, and acupuncture was still- So I will say that in modern Japan, acupuncture is not a highly valued tradition, sadly. Um, there, there is a there is a strand of, of the culture, maybe probably older individuals or more traditional individuals who certainly probably have a have a notion or a respect for something like acupuncture because it's part of a old tradition. But a lot of young kids, for example, or younger people, they don't really have much interest in acupuncture. To be honest with you, I mean that's the that's the truth of it, which is a little sad because a lot of the older masters. Um, and they, you know, they usually are men. But a lot of the older teachers in Japan, they're finding that you know their kids don't want to study with them. They don't want to carry on the tradition. It's it's quite true of Zen, for example. I, I studied Zen quite a long time in Japan, and some of the other traditions. You know, that a lot of the younger Japanese are not that interested in traditional practices anymore, for the most part. So, it's kind of you know there's a little bit of a tinge of sadness in that story, in the sense that it's it's a fairly lowly profession. It's it's kind of on the you know, oh, what, you couldn't get to medical school, so you did acupuncture. You know, that's kind of the right <laughs> perception. Um, Herbs is, is very it... different because it's medical doctors, so that's a whole different story. Okay.
1: Before um, we jump to that, as an acupuncturist, you said they're charging... It's a private system, so they're charging yeah. independently. Yeah. Are they charging comparable fees to what are being charged in the West? Yes. Are they able to I make think it's comparable? A living. Yeah, it's
0: comparable. Exactly. Okay. And they may, they're able to make a living. I mean it's perfectly and then of course there are some specialists who or some, you know, old usually older, more experienced practitioners who very likely have had a family tradition. So that does still exist in Japan and they may go back, you know, two, three, four or more generations of acupuncturists. And those individuals are usually fairly well known in their community. Um, And, you know, some of them we know in the West, too, like Shudo Denmei, for example, and others like that, who he's practicing. And, you know, Um, so people, you know, there's still an element of mystery and tradition and and reverence for acupuncture amongst some in some circles, let's say.
1: Okay. And herbs. Let's hear about that. Well,
0: herbs is, is totally different because, as I say, from the licensure end, you're only legally allowed to practice herbs as a physician or as a pharmacist. And it's a weird situation because the pharmacists can practice campo, but they can't touch. <laughs> in other words, they what they call It's not in their scope. So that's, that provides for a very interesting situation where you may go into a pharmacy, as many Japanese do, Kind of knowing a little bit about campo from a you know popular perspective, so they have probably heard. Well, oh, I think I've got the flu and I feel achy and I feel. Like, oh yeah, there's that formula that's supposed to be good. Let me go to the pharmacist because I haven't got time to make an appointment with the doctor or whatever. They go right. and they walk in the pharmacist. The pharmacist has to sort of go. Okay quickly come around the back to the back room, you know, because they don't want to be seen <laughs> to be maybe taking a pulse or, you know, but th- that happens very commonly in Japan. And the pharmacist in that case can be, and often acts as the frontline, you know, primary care, and they'll give them the formula over the counter. So that's one way that it happens. Uh, and the other way is by prescription from a doctor. So you have to go and make a make an actual appointment, see the doctor and, and they'll prescribe. The interesting thing though, Like China is that in the in and outpatient setting in hospitals, um, CAMPO is very much an integral part of the delivery system. So many physicians, especially GYN and GI, uh, especially those two subspecialties, I would say more often than not, patients will be offered CAMPO instead of Western medicine. So it is pretty well entrenched in the medical system. It is by prescription it is therefore linked to the national health service system so it's free delivery to the patients. so there are a lot of good things about that for for, uh, as regards patients right so as a patient with campo you're in a good position um, with regard to national health insurance and stuff like that Um, it's just that if you wanted to practice campo and you didn't want to study medicine you're in much more of a disadvantaged position which is one of the unique things about coming to the West and practicing right. Kenpo. <laughs> we have more, more freedom and lessons here yeah. to, to do that.
1: Now, with the formula names, are they using Japanese names, or are they still yes. using Mahuatan? Okay, they are yeah, using... They,
0: they, they use the Japanese names, which is a little... I've always, in my teaching, for example, I've always been careful to you know, insist on using the Pinyin names just because it's the, it's the obvious currency. There's no point in fighting against the current. Most people use pinyin. If you're you're ordering from a reputable company, they'll be using pinyin. Uh, You know, you could learn the Latin, but how many people use the Latin? Not many. Uh, The English gets confusing because, you know, ginger. Is it fresh ginger? Is it dried? You know, it's like, so you're always better off, I think, generally using pinyin. But in Japan, they only use the Japanese phonetic name, uh, which is not difficult. You just need a a quick reference system to, to sort that out.
1: So it's a similar name, but in if you Japanese. Have, if
0: you can read the characters, you've got no problem, because that's okay. the same characters. But uh, it's just that the name will sound different. Like, sound for different. example, Keishito uh, is Guizatan. So that's pretty different. Keishito. Yeah. So, so the sound is, you won't you won't recognize it from the sound, most likely. Right. So, um, yeah, what I'm teaching, for example, I, I created a long time ago, a kind of Excel spreadsheet with that kind of information, just for reference cross-referencing names just to make it easy. But, you know, I don't think there's any point in making a lot of effort to learn the Japanese names unless you're going to go and study there or something because most people don't use them.
1: Right. I want to get into your history and how you ended up there studying acupuncture and compo. But before I do, just sticking with the herbs for a moment, Mm -hmm. although it's a relatively small pharmacopoeia, it sounds like, that is being used with a limited number of formulas, are there herbs that are unique to Japan that have been added into the pharmacopoeia? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question.
0: I mean, there are, I mean, probably the most common that most people recognize right off the bat is reishi mushroom. Right. Uh, so that's one example of a, a fungi that is only grows, well, it grows predominantly in Japan and actually has translated back into China and it's now used in Chinese herbal Remedies. So there are a few examples of that. They're very, very few. Like literally, probably the fingers of one hand. So most of the, um, you know, transition or we could say, uh, you know, transmission of, of knowledge and you know, real herbs has come in one direction <laughs> from the Chinese mainland. Right. But um, yeah, there are some examples of some things. Uh, another good example would be Chinese, uh, Japanese cherry bark, uh, which is used in certain skin formulas. Um, which I didn't actually realize. It's kind of interesting in my experience. When I first worked in a TCM school in the clinic, um, I had a few examples of just discovering, because of my Chinese colleagues coming to me and say, what is that? And I'm like, what do you mean, what's that? That's a formula. Oh, we don't know that formula, and we don't know that ingredient. And that was, so that was very surprising to me and interesting, actually. That I learned that you know some of the things that I took for granted as being prevalent, in all practitioners, in fact, were unique to Japan and unique to Kampo, but there are really not that many examples. For
1: right. those few that do exist, if we're mm-hmm. using formulas primarily based on the Shang Han Lun and the mm-hmm. Han Dynasty classics, are they modifying those then? Because you said there was very little modification. Is reishi being added in, or are they still giving a classic formula and going, eh, and I think I'm going to add some reishi to the, for this patient as well?
0: Um, modification in Kampa is usually done with one or two herbs and the rule of thumb theoretically is if you're modifying by more than two herbs you've got the wrong formula that's kind of the, the rule of thumb and therefore because it's only one or two herbs there are one could say um, almost like standard or regular or common modifications that are for example Jiawei Shaya San is a modification of Shaya and in Japan, they don't even bother with prescribing shaiwan for the most part. They're always going to add, uh, you know, the other two herbs. Uh, in okay. that case, uh, jiawei wi grapey tang is another example. So typically one or two herbs, modification only.
1: Okay. Or different formula. Got it. All right. I want to hear how you got into this. You, <laughs> you went you to probably, japan
0: you probably don't because it's not it's not terribly glamorous or exciting <laughs> well, i, sure I wish there was a story like i was healed and then you know because <laughs> we all know examples of that and, and that's always encouraging when when people do have that direct experience and i didn't have that at all i mean i'm a i'm an arts graduate i i, I got a master's in comparative literature that's my background um so i like to read i like to start, I like to think um and I, funnily enough, um, almost came to Eulnick, of the words, because uh, I was graduating in England from my college, uh, not sure what I wanted to do. Many arts graduates are in that position. I was young, obviously, and I thought the thing to do probably was just carry on, you know, do my PhD. So I was studying comparative literature and I applied to UBC yeah, um, and Berkeley in California and i got a i got a place at both places i decided i was probably going to go to berkeley in the end actually so if you can imagine i'm like it's may of my graduating in a senior year at college i've just got i'm thinking like okay in september i'm going to be in the united states and i don't know what really happened i just one morning i was just thinking you know what i don't really want to go on with this full-time education thing i'm like i want to travel i want to you know i've, I've been doing this for a while i'm not that i don't think i want to become an academic so anyway long story short i actually decided i'm not going to do it uh, my yeah. dad nearly killed me i remember he's like you <laughs> up this, you know? i remember my parents were like what are you doing and uh i found i think through a friend i can't remember exactly the the origin of it all but someone said to me you know you could teach english in order to do other things and the best place to do that is japan because it was the the 1980s the economy was really good Anyone could teach English, so I went off right the month after. So in June of that same year, which was 1982, actually, I went. Um, I did a three or four month, you know, brief training program in EFL, English as a foreign language, because okay. I thought that would be useful. And off I went to Japan. Um, I was also interested to in go to China, but it was pretty tricky to get into China at that time. So I went to the to Asia with absolutely no preconceived idea of what I was going to do at all, other than. I probably could teach English, and that would help me survive, and then I'll find something. <laughs> so I landed in Japan, and you know, really it was just very serendipitous. The, the, the people that I happened to meet were all, because you understand, know in Japan in the early 80s, it was quite, for a foreigner, it was quite an expensive place. Um, so you didn't, it wasn't really on the backpacking route. It wasn't like Thailand or, you know, India yeah. or something. No. It was like, this is a serious country which is expensive. So if you're going to stay there, you've got to get a job. You've got to do something. So the the foreigners that were there, and there weren't that many there, were usually involved in something interesting. They were either students or expats or working or doing something. So in the short space of time, I met a whole bunch of fascinating people, people studying shakuhachi flute, people studying Bhutto dance, a lot of people doing martial arts. And then sooner or later, I came in touch with a group of people that were studying acupuncture. And I'd never really heard much about acupuncture. I sort of knew what it was vaguely. So anyway, long story short, I, I went to a class um, and I thought, wow, this is this is pretty interesting. Um, I started to study a little bit and then it became more formal. I entered the school and really just sort of went from there. <laughs> it's like a, I signed up for the what I thought was a three-year program, but only when we were coming to graduate the, the three-year school <laughs> they told us, Oh, by the way, you now have, in order to get your graduate certificate, you have to now do, you have to find, uh-huh. uh, find a mentor and then work in their clinic for two years and then we'll give you a So, you know, the kind of thing you'd never get away with in United States these
1: days. It uh, must have been lost in translation the first yeah, time. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> I don't think they ever told us. Anyway, <laughs> but, you know, I can't complain because I had a great time in those two years as well. I found a couple of teachers who at that time, again, being a foreigner there was quite sort of interesting for Japanese so they would so they took us into their clinics quite happily and we had a, a lot of privilege actually in terms of patient care and all that so yes yeah, so it was a five year thing um, you know and it just went from one stage to another and I, I, I think I, I remember feeling even at the end of those five years not really being sure that that's what I was going to do I didn't really think of it as a career I guess maybe it was just a feature of being young or at that time or a lot of 20 something year olds you do things and you're interested in them but you don't necessarily think of them as oh this is going to be my path you know I think and then we all went to China and we, I was six months in Beijing um in 1987 which believe me was an experience so pre tiananmen man uh, that was pretty wild I gotta say that was one of the wildest times I've ever had um in terms of just experience of being in a, a raw culture that was you know so radically different from Japan I mean. I mean, without value judging, it was, it was, yeah, it was hard. It was hard. You know, we didn't, we didn't have right. any heating in the dormitories. We didn't have any heating in the hospital. It was winter time. You could see your breath, you know, the patients would come in in December, you know, wearing about five layers of clothing <laughs> that you, you'd needle through the clothes because they really? were really, wow. I mean, it was <laughs> wild, you know, they'd take you to surgery. You'd see like craniotomies and C-sections with acupuncture and see, C- I mean, it was wild. It was stuff I had never seen. So. China was, anyone asks me about China, I'm, I always say, go do it. It's, it's amazing to see that stuff. But if you ask me, have I ever tried to repeat any of the things that I saw in China? No. <laughs> My patients have <laughs> probably run a mile. I mean, the, the needling techniques and the, wow, it was intense. It was intense, you know. I just remember finding, you know, those first few weeks, this little Japanese contingent of ours from Tokyo, um, we all felt like, well, we, kind of felt like we knew something at least um, but we were made to feel like we knew nothing because the patient even the patients would look up at us and say i don't feel anything i don't feel anything you know we, if it's no pain no pain no gain no pain no... <laughs> yeah it's a very different culture very different culture but it anyway, is that re- yeah
1: that that just reminds me of a patient who i repeatedly had to treat in the hospital where i interned in beijing as huh. well in beijing. and she I was told by the practitioner she was addicted to needles. And so yeah. she would come in and they would tell me to needle 100 plus points on her to wow. the bone on every point. Yeah, and so yeah. it's literally pecking the bone on her arms and legs. And I was like, this doesn't feel right. Like, I don't <laughs> even know what I'm treating this woman for, but it's like, yeah. it's just like a moving pincushion. It was definitely very different than the Japanese system of, yeah. of gentle insertion. What language of instruction were you Yeah, good experiencing? question. Um, you know,
0: in Japan, we I was lucky all around when I think about it because, you know, I figured out pretty quickly in Japan, like, okay, am I going to study Japanese formally and get serious about that? this and go to Japanese acupuncture school, which obviously required fluent Japanese. So I figured I would need to take two years to do that and then go to school. And someone else told me who had been through Japanese school um, it wasn't Stephen Brown because I think he'd just left back to Seattle at that point already. But anyway, someone else had gone on, they'd gone, gone through already, they had fluent Japanese. They said to me, "You know what, if you're not going to practice in Japan, don't do that. You want to go to one of these, and there were a few known schools. I went to one of them, where it was run by Japanese teachers, uh, but the language was English, but it wasn't official, it wasn't an official government approved school. Uh, which you didn't do because you weren't going to take the Japanese license exam at the end. So that's the school kind of school I went to. And in that scenario, you always had people in class who had fluent Japanese. And uh, funny enough, another Nigel, uh, we, call it, we, we had the English Nigel and the Australian Nigel. So my Australian friend Nigel had been in Japan. He was studying Shiatsu actually predominantly. Uh, he'd been there in years already, had fluent Japanese. So he became uh, one of the main translators in the class, which was super helpful and uh, we are good friends to this day so i really owe a huge amount to him um, in japan but then in china we paid us relatively at that time small amount in dollars cash for interpreters so we had interpreters there and that was really the only way to kind of connect with the teachers directly and so on so yeah we had the privilege of learning mostly in english yeah
1: in your decision to then study compo, was that also in Japan that you did that at a yes. different time or the same time?
0: It was a little later because to be honest with you, the thing that inspired me most, most quickly in Japan was Shiatsu. That was the thing I picked, you yeah. know, that appealed to me at my kind of gut level. I love the Shiatsu. We had to do two years of intense Shiatsu in the school um, as part of the acupuncture training. That was a requirement for all students. And a lot of students bitched and moaned about it, you know, we came to study acupuncture, we don't want to. But I really liked the Shiatsu, and I then found a teacher outside of school who became my mentor for all the five years I was there. And I, used to have, I had treatments with him every week for five years. I mean, he, he was a really close you know, teacher and friend of mine, and a great practitioner. So I really loved Shiatsu, and through Shiatsu, I think my feeling for acupuncture grew, in terms of meridian work and palpatory stuff and all that. And during that time, I would say the first two or three years, I didn't really have much contact with herbs at that time. Um, it was quite enough to try to learn all this uh, tactile stuff. But we had um, a New Zealander actually who was a pharmacist by training who married a Japanese. Um, I remember him really well. He's sadly passed away now, Peter. But he, uh, we, we started badgering him sort of somewhere halfway through the training. You know, would you. Because he was studying at Kitasata, which is a big institute for Kampo in Tokyo. And we, he was one of the few, in fact, one of the only foreigners I know who was doing that. And his Japanese was really fluent. So we were, a few of us who were interested in hers. we kind of badgered him. And eventually he, he actually started teaching us um, in small groups. So my training as it was in Japan, ironically, was mostly formula study and theoretical work and palpation stuff the abdomen and all that we didn't really do any clinical work so my I had to when I got back to London um, another teacher from Japan days an American woman Gretchen who became my main teacher in in, I know this is a bit long-winded but (laughs) um, it was sort of piecemeal basically is what I'm saying I graduated Japan I went to China came back from China went to England and it wasn't until being back in England that Gretchen happened serendipitously having met an English guy and got married she ended up back in London so I then went to her and said, well, have you thought of teaching campo? You know, because I really would like to be able to do internship with you and do a more kind of hands-on, you know, clinical training, which I missed in Japan. So I actually completed my campo study with Gretchen in London after all of the Asian experience. So it was a sort of a long-winded process. of, And as I got into that, I really started to have a, a kind of penchant, a, a love for the herbs that uh, I hadn't really developed early on. Um, and I started to graduate more to, um, initially actually shiatsu and herbs in London was a big combination of what I was trying to use. But when I came to the States in 93 or four, um, I noticed that shiatsu wasn't so popular and acupuncture was very popular. So just in terms of practicality, I sort of went, came back into my acupuncture practice in a big way in the States, sort of 25 years ago or so. So Right. Kind of, and, I kind of ran in circles.
1: <laughs> and while you were still in England or London, you had a shiatsu yes. institute, right?
0: Yes, I opened a small. Again, it was, these things are just totally organic. I had a few uh, young, keen students who somehow had found out. Oh, there's this guy who came up from Japan. He knows a bit of shiatsu, or whatever. They were approaching me. You know, can you teach? And next thing you knew, I'd formed this little informal school. Basically, we call it the London College of Shiatsu, and and I I ran that for five years in London and did a a three-year training in in shiatsu Yes, so that was a big part of my life then which i loved actually it was great
1: yeah so now you're in new york city and teaching still part of your life right
0: teaching's always been part yeah i kind of i I love that there's nothing quite like that moment where someone gets something and you've been a small part in them getting that thing and their face lights up and it's i don't know that excites me i always get excited by that and i always learn from students and uh you can't help but do that because you know if you're if you're a teacher worth your salt you got to do preparation and you got to do study and you got to prepare and in doing that you learn a lot so and you got to be organized you know sometimes as practitioners we're a little chaotic because we're in the moment or whatever but as a teacher you got to be pretty you know sorted out so it's a good training for anyone I think Um, so yeah I do like to teach I'm not I've never really considered myself an acupuncture teacher I've always been a bit shy with acupuncture. I, you, you might find this a little strange, but I've always considered myself acupuncture to be the most challenging, most demanding of all the disciplines that I've practiced. Right. Um, some people might assume that herbs would, would, would have that kind of particular description, but that's not my experience. I actually experience, in campo, the ability to, once you get to a level of really understanding the formulas and relating to them, I find it actually more cause-and-effect ABC than acupuncture, which to me is always open-ended and and endless. And so I never really felt hugely confident teaching acupuncture, to be honest. Uh, But shiatsu and herbs are within my scope, and I'm comfortable with them. And uh, uh, these days I'm teaching mostly campo, yeah. But, um, you know, I teach a bit of shiatsu, too.
1: What What is the New York Campo Institute? So really just a name.
0: It's basically myself and a program that I've created, which is a it has different formats, but it's about a 300 hour postgraduate training. So you have to be a licensed uh, practitioners to apply for it. And I do it in different formats. It may be weekend format, maybe a more intensive format, but it's the same curriculum, usually over a one or two year period, depending on which so that's the main flagship program. i've I've done a few sheets of things as well um, on the side uh, under the name of the institute, but it's basically myself and either another institution or an individual or a group of graduate students who basically ask me to teach. And so i use the I use the materials through the institute to to deliver that stuff, yeah.
1: And so as postgraduate training you said for licensed individuals is that licensed in herbal medicine or in acupuncture?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question and that's one of the advantages of the campus system in my opinion is that because it's 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 not separate from the study of acupuncture obviously the basic understanding and underpinning theoretical foundations of Chinese medicine is the same for acupuncture as it is for herbs but uh, since it's not TCM, we're not using the same language exactly, and a lot of the assessment tools are different and unique, meaning that you could be an acupuncture graduate or you could be an OM graduate, and you'd both be in more or less the same position of learning something new when you come to the campo system. Okay. So I don't, I don't discriminate. You can have a, you know, a Masters of Acupuncture or a Masters of, of, of uh, Acupuncture and Order of Medicine, both, You might assume that you have more of an advantage if you have a herbal background. And when it comes to knowledge of individual herbs and things like that, that's true. But the system of CAMPO is different enough and distinct enough from TCM that you got to, you know, there's different challenges. If you're an OM graduate, it's almost like you have to take off one hat and put on a different one, which is not always easy to do. If you're an acupuncture graduate, you don't have to take off any hat. You're just like, it's all new. So. There's advantages and disadvantages for each, but both are welcome. So, yeah, I teach acupuncture graduates and OM graduates, yeah.
1: Okay. And you do some writing and translating, correct?
0: Translating a little. I mean, there was one main book that I worked with with my teacher, actually, Gretchen from London. She was the main translator. Husband, okay. I would, it would be quick to add. Her Japanese, her vernacular Japanese is definitely better than mine. But I did all the technical stuff, so I did a lot of vocabulary stuff and this and that. So my translation skills are probably not good enough to to do an entirely complex book. But I was certainly able to assist her in in, in producing that book. So no, I'm not really a translator, but um, I do like writing. I find it very therapeutic. Um, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy organizing my ideas and and sometimes hopefully coming up with something that's vaguely original or different. And I, have, I did enjoy the abdomen book very much, the more recent book that I did, uh, which was you know a good five years in the preparation. But I was hmm. um, I did quite a bit of research for that and found it really fascinating.
1: So that's the Fukushin and Kampo? Yeah, Fukushin and Kampo, yes. Yeah, and that's by Singing Dragon?
0: That's Singing Dragon, yes. And they're, they, they're very keen to, uh, we sort of rather grandiosely came up with the idea of a trilogy, <laughs> meaning the book on diagnosis, uh, a book on formulas, and a and a case study book. That was the the trilogy idea. So, um, I'm working on it. I've I've put in proposals. They're very keen to to do follow up and, pr- and publish both those two. But I'm working on the formulas book right now, and I'm also having a um, an intern of mine compile some of my own cases and see if I can start to get some you know material together to to look at a case study book as well. So. A couple of ideas I'd like to do. So two more bucks in the works potentially. Two more books. yeah, but then I'll be done. <laughs> That'll be enough. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, this is great, Nigel. It's it's been really fun catching up with you. And I haven't done any uh, really study at all of Japanese acupuncture since you guys were were at Pacific Rim teaching the program. And even then, my my study was, was not complete of it, but it's really nice to be able to learn some of the culture there and some of the history behind the the medicines and uniqueness behind the diagnosis and treatment strategies. Thank you for all of that.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I do think, um, yeah, I just wanted to add one again. It's, I always have to tread carefully because I obviously, and maybe obviously I'm a bit of a Japanophile. I'm certainly not, uh, I would like to think I'm not in any way, you know, against the culture of modern China. Um, I'm not wild about the politics of modern China, but that's another story. Um, But, you know, I would just say in many ways, I'm unqualified to make any pronouncements about Chinese medicine from China because I haven't really spent enough time there. But I would say one thing about Japanese medicine practices that seems to be true from my own experience. And that is to say that having worked in two main settings in the West, one in London and one in New York, urban settings admittedly, uh, with obviously Westerners. I do think that the modern, and that is to say the last maybe two to 300 years of integration of modern medicine with traditional medicine in Japan has meant that it's produced a system that I think is perhaps a little bit more accessible to Westerners. more naturally than maybe some of the, you know, practices that you'll find currently in China. Um, and again, that's not meant as any criticism, it's meant as a kind of, I think some of those things in China that are maybe almost unchanged for a long time, that it's sometimes hard to translate to a modern, you know, westernized urban setting. Um, so that's all I would say. I'd say that if you, if there is any advantage at all to studying Japanese systems, other than maybe your appeal to a certain nuanced, subtle kind of approach that they often use. It's that I think Western patients may possibly be more, you know, suited to the techniques than some of the Chinese techniques that might be quite foreign to, to some Westerners. So I would say that.
1: Right. Yeah, well thank you for
0: that. Where it's kind they, of ironic because Chinese medicine is predominant in, in America
1: compared to Japanese medicine. Well it is, that's anyway. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Where can people learn more about you, Nigel? Uh,
0: well, they can go to campoherbology.com, which is my current website, which is also a clinical website. So they, you know, patients can make appointments on that. But there's also some information about my teaching and this and that. I, I don't have a huge web presence, um, but you know, that's that's somewhere they they could go to, and there'd be my web. My um, email is on that uh, web on that uh, page, so they. You know, people are very welcome to contact me for whatever reason.
1: Great. And they can also pick up a book, I presume, of the yes. Fokishin and Kampo. Yes, yeah.
0: yes. Fokishin and Kampo at singingdragon.com. Um, and I recommend going straight to the publisher because certainly you can get it on Amazon. Everybody knows that. But uh, you'll pay more. If you go straight to the publisher on their website, you can get it for a little less. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, there's the translation of Dr. Otsuka's book by myself and my teacher Gretchen, which is from 2010. That's also now with Singing Dragon. That's the okay. second edition of Sing, Singing Dragon. So that'll be on their website. Uh, that's Campo, Campo Medicine Theory and Practice, um, which is an interesting book, I think. Originally written in 1956 by Dr. Otsuka and translated by us in 2010. The the first edition was Churchill Livingston, but I think that's out of print now. So it's Singing Dragon is the second uh, edition. Yeah, great. So those are a couple of texts.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this today.
0: Yeah, had a lot of fun. It's great. It's great to catch up with you, and uh, thanks for all the. You also. It was interesting to, you know, answer these questions or try to, because you know you don't think about them that much, and then you find yourself saying things like, oh, yeah, right, that's fair. So, Bringing things back. It's a bit like looking at old photographs
1: in the box, right? <laughs> <laughs> some <laughs> you probably wish you hadn't looked at.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, some, some that you later on cringe about, yes. Yeah. But, but.
1: Well, again, thank you. This has been very educational, I'm sure. All the listeners will appreciate having a, a taste for the Japanese culture and Japanese style of treatment.
0: Yeah. Well, you're welcome, Todd. Thanks very much for having me.
1: It's been a pleasure. Have a great day. Yep.
0: Okay. You
1: too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Nigel Dawes. If you would like to learn more about Nigel, please visit his website at compoherbology.com. That's K-A-M-P-O-H-E-R-B-O-L-O-G-Y.com and buy a copy of his book, Fukushin and Compo at singingdragon.com. If you feel drawn to the study of Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at pacificrimcollege.online including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, try Japanese herbal medicine and acupuncture and find your zen.